Good evening, good evening, everybody. Tuesday night. Tuesday night, and I'm feeling all right. I hope you are, too. On this 27th day of June, 2023, it's almost done, man. July 1st is on Saturday, right? No. Is, is there 31 days in June? I don't know anymore. I hate the 30-day. No, there's 30 days. Yeah, Saturday is July 1st. See? I was right the first time. I should never second-guess myself. Anyway, welcome to the show. Uh, we've got a good one tonight, and we actually have a little bit extra time. We have a little bit more time than we thought, that I thought we were going to have with band practice, because that has been uh, pushed to another day, another time that does not in, uh, interfere with the show for this week. So I, um, I'm going to expand on something I wanted to do for a couple of days now, and it might might just be perfect for tonight because of all the threads and things going on, and we're coming up on the end of this uh, this psycho month, this psycho activist month. And and you're here with me, and I think that this should inspire some really interesting calls. So I appreciate your company. I also want to thank my sponsors for tonight, all of my friends on the affiliates page on quitefrankly.tv. Uh, but most importantly, Blue Monster Prep. Check them out, ladies and gents. Get your two-way radios. Get your uh, crisis garden seeds. Get your gas masks. Your first aid kits. Teach yourself a new skill. Learn how to use them because they can teach you how to use all of this equipment as well. Um, they've been teaching law enforcement and first responders for years. That is a bigger part of their of their operation at Blue Monster Prep before they came into the broadcast world and became our uh, sponsor. So check out Pat and Gina's work at BlueMonsterPrep.com. Tomorrow night we have Jason Burmis coming on the show. George Nori, Coast to Coast AM, is going to be on with us on Thursday night. That'll be the last night of the week because June 30th, I'm off for the for the evening. Then we come back on Monday, July 3rd, off for the 4th, and then we're back for the 5th and onward from there. And great stuff, great stuff, great topics coming up and really awesome summertime guests coming up as well, too. July is just stacked. And August is starting to look great. September is starting to get spackled now with great guests. Some I'll tell you about. Some you'll just have to wait. But um, don't want to overwhelm you here. A couple of things before we get started, though. A couple other things. As I said last night, Shoeless Joe, my copy with all of my highlights, all of my notes... And whoever wins this in a raffle, I will inscribe something on the inside to you like I have done everybody who's, who has won. Also on the inside of this book, which means uh, a great deal to me at this point, now that I've read it, is Matt's notes on how to survive going to the bottom of the sea in a terrible submarine. So a terribly constructed submersible. So anybody who sends a super chat to quite frankly superchat.com that's the, that's the only place to get in on this raffle because i have to keep all the names in one place any super chat that you send from now until july 3rd probably around noon on july 3rd uh is going to put you into the raffle so again you can send 10 super chats from now until then for the raffle's sake you'll only be counted once 
for fairness, but for interacting with the show's sake, send 20. I, I, I would be most appreciative of that. And there you go. This is our raffle right now, and there's other things. Lauren even suggested that for the August Book Club, I should give away a couple of copies of Devil in the White City throughout the month of July. Just so some people have the book beforehand. And then I can also raffle off the one that I use for that um, that August Wednesday night excursion that we're going to be going on. That's going to be wonderful. Uh, what else? Do, is there anything else around here that's going to remind me of something else I had to say? No. Just the book. And I hope you all take part in that raffle and get in on it. All right. Into the grab bag we go. The first one up. Hold on a second. There you go. The first one up is from Fox 43. Where is this? From Pennsylvania to New York to Florida. Oh, I I guess it's a little bit more of a national story here. Uh, This is really interesting. This was sent over to me for some grab bag considerate. What the? Just bounced away. There you go. This was sent to me. We're back to 1997 with the pop-ups, only they're worse because you can't find them anywhere. Um, Stuffed military bear. A stuffed military bear travels hundreds of miles back to the owner. Here's a little bit of a heartwarming story that was sent to me for my consideration. From Pennsylvania to New York to Florida, this military bear traveled hundreds of miles. See how social media helped a baby reunite with her bear. Like most kids, three-month-old Violet Boyer has become very attached to her teddy bear. Quote, we like to bring the bear with us and say we're going to bring the bear uh, with any time we go somewhere special, says her mother, Natalie Balmer. But who her stuffed animal represents makes her bear a little bit more meaningful than the average child's. Let's get dad, said Balmer. Let's take him. Violet's dad got stationed in Korea one week before I found out I was pregnant, said Balmer. He was able to come home for her birth for three weeks, and then he had to go back. We don't know when he'll be home. Balmer uh, brought little Violet up to Pennsylvania on her maternity leave. The Hershey native now lives in Pensacola, Florida, and the military bear came along for the trip. But they quickly realized it was missing. We had him in her car seat, and he must have fallen out while we were walking in, and I didn't realize it until we were done with breakfast. So we searched everywhere for him, asking surrounding businesses just trying to find him. Violet's grandma wrote this post on Facebook, which was shared thousands of times, asking if anyone had seen this very special bear. A few days later, she received a message from a family in New York who had found it. They said in their message that they could tell it was significant, so they wanted to pick it up so nothing would happen to it. The Lowe family had been vacationing with their son, Nivik, in Hershey from Hornell, New York. Here's a quote. I didn't know he picked up a stuffed animal until we got back to the car, said Father Kevin Lowe. It's a homemade bear, and I know if I made something like that and we lost it, I definitely want it returned. So they cared for the bear until someone connected with the family through Facebook. Then Lowe shipped Violet's bear all the way to Pensacola, Florida. I cried when I found out it was found, said Bomber. Uh, When she got it back, I could just tell she was so excited. We were very thankful that they had kept him safe. Now, that's a nice story, but it also made me think of something that I I was thinking about doing with this audience. I don't know how we can do it. I told Lauren about it. Uh, I don't know how many weeks back, but I asked Lauren... I said, do you, have you, when you were in, I don't know, middle school or whatever, did you ever do a geo bear? She said, no, what's that? 
So well, when I was in fifth grade, so 1995, fifth grade, and my teacher, Mrs. McCullough, she said, uh, she said, we're going to do something special. We're going to start a, uh, an experiment here. We're going to uh, buy ourselves a uh, teddy bear. It's a geo bear because he was going to travel the world. I said, what is this? You know, we were all very intrigued by this. We bought the bear, had a little backpack on it and all that stuff. We put a couple of things inside the backpack. It wasn't that big, maybe about, you know, less than a foot tall as it's sitting down. And it, it might have been part of some sort of a program, a worldwide program that other schools can get involved with. But this bear was sent all over the place. We're talking it made a stop in Africa. It made a stop to a school in, in uh, I don't know where in Europe, but it went to China. It went to Japan. It went to all these places around the world, Australia. And every time it went to a new school, the, the, the fifth grade class, wherever it landed, they took a picture with the Geo Bear as a group picture, and it was stuffed inside of the backpack, and then it was shipped out again to somebody else. And this bear became a world traveler. So when it came back to us a few months later, it was just so cool because, A, we're looking at all these kids from around the world that we will probably never meet in our lives, but they're real, and there they are with this bear. And it was just really awesome to think about how many thousands and thousands of miles this bear had traveled. Just to, and, and, you know, we had a big uh, map of the, uh, of the world in, on, our, uh, on our cork board inside of the, the school there. In, uh, in our classroom and we would you know take the pins and we would draw the yarn to the next place that it's going so we have all this yarn these the lines going from country to country continent to continent and I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Lauren thinking out loud with Lauren I said well how do we do this how do we do this with quite frankly we've got to do a geo bear and we've got to we've got to have this scent this has got to go to people all of, and, and you know obviously there is you just got to be just got to hope that someone's going to pass it along and not take it. But what's the point of keeping it? The whole point is to be able to get it to go around the world and have this bear see places and see things being taken. You know, somebody take a picture of it outside of uh, of Paris where the, uh, the Eiffel Tower is in view or something like that. I already know some people who would probably love for it to be shipped to them. So I'm going to think about this. And if you have any ideas, please get in touch with me. Even if it's just to say, Frank, we did a Geo Bear too because that was a wonderful memory. And I'd love to do that at some point with this audience. All right. Oh, here's a good story. It's a real 21st century love story. Come chill. Man robs woman at her home and then adds her on Facebook and asks her out because I guess he thought she was cute. Look, there you go. How nice. He looks like a real winner. An Indianapolis man has been apprehended for committing armed robbery in a bizarre fashion. The incident occurred when Damien Boyce allegedly held Amber Barone. There they are right there. The, uh, the victim is on the right and the attacker is on the left. He held her at gunpoint, forcibly taking $100 in cash from her while she was checking her mail. Astonishingly, after the robbery, Boyce told Barone to find him on Facebook and add him as a friend. Following the ordeal, Boyce... (laughs) You know, all things considered, all things considered, uh, she's lucky it ended this way. 
Boyce assured Barone that uh, he would reimburse her at a later time before making his getaway on a bicycle. Subsequently, Barone received messages on Facebook from Boyce expressing his desire to meet with her. One of Boyce's messages, as reported on by Fox 19, said, Look, just know I'm a pay you back. It's an expletive way to meet. I guess it's a screwed up way to meet, but you was too pretty to rob. For real, I'm, we had to meet up on them. I'm, I'm all messed up, I guess, that we had to meet up on them terms. Come chill with me. I swear I'm not, I'm no on that type of timing. I'm no on that type of timing. I believe you, man. I can tell you're sweet. Times just get rough, I know that, the victim replied. I do have a man. You know I can't do that, LOL. I wish you the best, though. <laughs> this is so, this is sweet, isn't it? It's like, to, uh, I, I don't know what. Uh, on Wednesday, Boyce was arrested for armed robbery. Oh, and charged as a felon in possession of a handgun. Boyce had already been taken into custody in a previous week for separate crime involving robbery, resulting in bodily injury and assault with a deadly weapon. In that incident, he allegedly shot two individuals and assaulted another person with a brick. So, I bet you any money they end up together. I'll wait for you. Wait for me, hon. Wait for me, hon. I'll wait for you. I can, I can, I can see it. I bet you any money they end up together. I hope there's a follow-up on that. Indianapolis. Thought for sure that was a Florida story. All right. Uh, Roseanne Barr has made some news. You may have seen it. She's trending all over the place. And um, funny thing is, I had texted her this morning before this went lot. This went. Uh, this went viral. And still, we still haven't gotten anything back, but now this has happened, so she's probably busy. Um, Roseanne Barr, this is from Showbiz 411, which is, you know, the, the brainchild of Roger Friedman. And he's very triggered by this. Roseanne Barr, anti-Semitic rant. She was on a podcast with Theo Vaughn. And she was talking about the inversion of truth, about what, you know, what truth is. And, and it was in the, these very dryly delivered jokes. And she said, nobody died in the Holocaust. That's the truth. Six million Jews should die right now because they cause all the problems in the world. It never happened. Roseanne Barr is a sick woman, says Roger Friedman, a known racist who lost her TV show for that reason. Boy, he is really upset. Now in a podcast, she goes on an anti-Semitic rant. It wasn't a rant. Nobody died in the Holocaust, that's the truth. Six million Jews should die right now because they cause all the problems in the world, she had twice. It never happened. The entire interview is anti-Semitic. The interviewer points out that Barr is fully Jewish, but it doesn't matter. She's one of the sickest people out there. So that's it. She was already out of show business, but now she must be ostracized from civilization. There's no apology, no excuse. She's deeply demented and deserves to be a social leper. These comments begin at two minutes... She's, uh, like I said, on with Theo Vaughn, and she's talking about this. Uh, and, and he go, oh, P.S., in another, another video, Donald Trump, uh, uh, she called Donald Trump the first woman president of the United States. Now, I brought that up with her before. And it's, again, th- they come from a place where they're either 
so loosey-goosey with the kind of things that they joke about or they are vomiting all over themselves because they can't control their emotions I, I mean, she. I mean, who was the woman with the jacked-up face, um, who was making all the abortion jokes at the White House Correspondents' Dinner a few years ago? Who was she? I, some some comedian. I forget. You, when you have some bitter liberal woman go out there, makes jokes and gloats about butchering the unborn or bombing the White House or or decapitating the, the, the current president. That's a OMG, she went there moment. You know, that, that that's it. All dissenting opinions at that point, people say, you know, the, these abortion jokes are, are sick. You're talentless. This is all. Anybody has a dissenting opinion then, it's just prude, retrograde babble from people who can't take a joke. That's what that's all is because they, you know, the Roger Freemans, Freedmans are on their side and, and we know how the system is all set up. We'll be talking a lot about that system tonight, but this boy, how fast the soapboxes come out when a Jewish comedian is clearly joking about no Jews dying at the hands of the Nazis, no Jews dying. Even those who think that the six million number is ridiculous are generally still able to agree that several hundred thousand died in the camps. But um, but none. I, I, that should be the biggest clue that she's delivering a joke about the inversion of truth. Okay. Now afterward, afterward she goes on to comment about she is the wrong kind of Jew. When when Theo Vaughn says, well, you know, you are part Jew she goes I'm full I'm fully Jewish you know both parents and um, and he goes on so she goes on to say that she's the wrong type of Jew for Hollywood standards and that I we know that's not a joke she's mentioned that a few times on this show as well but you know then you have the left whoever's out there because you know it's there there are people like the Krasensteins that stand that stand uh, ready ready for anything to be published in the media. They stand, they sit there on their couch with their phones or their laptops, and they watch the headlines, and then they go and they make soapbox statements that make you know one stupider than the next. But to see the people out there who have the nerve to bring up any kind of psychiatric conditions that Roseanne may or may not have had and may or may not have treated in the past, uh, just to use it against her as a weapon is uh, incredibly ironic in the middle of Pride Month especially where every mental illness has its own flag. So I, I think that is, um, that's incredible. That's incredible. And Roseanne is very brave woman, whether that's because she's mentally ill or not (laughs) is besides the point. So I hope she gets to come on the show again soon. And, um, and that's all I got to say on that. 7.15, don't go anywhere. We're about to get this one started. We're talking about the, the price that we have paid for so-called liberation. Don't go anywhere. We coming right back after this. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. Those puny little ants outnumber us a hundred to one. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. It's not about food. It's about keeping those ants in line. 
That's why we're going back! Does anybody else want to stay? Let's ride! Okay, the Gilda just told me it's Michelle Wolf. Michelle Wolf is the so-called comedian that was at the White House Correspondents' Dinner a couple of years ago. It was uh, Trump was still in office because I remember he he opted not to go, and it was just fucking gross, gross. And that's a modern day Holocaust. That's an a, an act. That's a modern day actual Holocaust that's ongoing. What's going on uh, with abortion culture? But th- it all ties in with liberation theology. How liberated we are. So liberated. Love it. Thankfully. Thank God somebody liberated us. And I want to talk a little bit about where we're, where we're going tonight. We can kick it off with this article that I found on Zero Hedge not too long ago. It says, can you explain what has gone wrong with America? At this point, nobody can deny that we are a society in decline. This is written by Michael Snyder. In America today, you can buy a U.S. senator for $10,000. Test scores for 13-year-olds have dropped to an alarmingly low levels, and the CDC is telling us that more people than ever are getting depressed. Our streets are filled with crime, the ranks of the homeless are absolutely surging, and we are facing the worst drug crisis in the entire history of our nation. Meanwhile, corruption is seemingly everywhere. The guy in the White House and his son have made millions of dollars in an epic influence-peddling scheme that stretched over many years, and the mainstream media doesn't seem to care. Of course, they know exactly what it's like to be bought and paid for because the only reason the big news networks can survive is because of the millions of advertising dollars that the pharmaceutical industry continues to inject into their dying carcasses. As Victor David Hansen, Davis Hansen, has astutely observed, America was once experiencing a gradual decline, but now the fall of our nation has, quote, accelerated at such an astonishing rate we can scarcely recognize our country. I guess you can call that a quickening. I gotta ask George Norrie about that. 21st century America was on a trajectory of gradual decline until it began to explode. Was the accelerant the COVID-19 pandemic and unhinged lockdowns, or was the catalyst the woke revolution fueled by the 2020 summer of exempted rioting, looting, arson, and violence? Or was it perhaps the deranged fixation on removing Donald Trump from the presidency and destroying the rule of law in the process? Or all that and more? Now with the election of Joe Biden, what has been a fast-track decline has accelerated at such an astonishing rate we can scarcely recognize our country. I wish what he is saying wasn't true, but it is. That's Michael Snyder talking again. Just a few years ago, organized looting was something that was fairly uncommon. 
sadly now we have reached a point where groups of people are constantly storming into our major retailers, grabbing whatever they want and then storming out. Retail crime is at a record high and thieves are becoming bolder than ever. Quote, we just got a lot of stressful situations where me or we just had a lot of stressful situations where me or like one of my coworkers have gotten hit trying to get stuff back, said May McRae, the manager of Las Vegas boutique Eden Sky. Quote, we have people who completely fill up their hands and just run out. No care in the world, end quote. The riots of 2020 were a real turning point, and retail theft hit the $100 billion mark for the very first time in 2022. The National Retail Federation found retailers lost approximately $100 billion last year, which is up from $94 billion in 2021 and $91 billion in 2020. Quote, they're getting more comfortable with it because we won't chase after them, McRae said of shoplifters, noting how many retailers train employees not to go after the shoplifter for safety reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, I understand that. I understand it. You know, people say, why aren't they doing anything? Well, um, if you are, I don't know, I mean, some places you're probably making a little bit more than minimum wage, and a lot of places they pay well above minimum wage, but still, it, just like we were talking about the other night, how, what is the threshold for what you're willing to do and what you're willing to respond to, in order, which carries the risk of you not going home that evening? Where, where, where do you think that is? What is that? Is it a bag? Is, a, is, is it a Louis Vuitton bag? Would you risk your life for that? So many of these companies, knowing what's going on, if they're not going to get help from the police, then perhaps they should actually you know, uh, exp- uh, expend a little bit more money in hiring security who's willing to crack some heads. But if they're not going to get any help from the police or whatever, you certainly don't want anybody that's ringing people up or there to, as, a, as a personal stylist or a cashier or a stock boy or whatever to put themselves into situations where they may die on the job. This is a very real thing. There were people dying, uh, there were people dying getting shot dead in the street for trying to uh, stop looting during the 2020 riots. That was going on. So it's a lot. It's a lot to consider, but uh, all the pieces add up. It's being projected that retail theft will go way above $100 billion mark this year. Unfortunately, most of our politicians don't seem interested in solving the crisis. Yeah, right. The, what you get out of politicians is what we have going on in New York right now, where instead of actually going and um, assessing a situation for what it is and trying to find real meaningful ways to, to solve it, to hinder crime, to bring people to justice, to get tougher, and to try to change the street culture a little bit more, uh, they still, they instead, the city council will say, we've got to crack down on all the coal and the wood-burning stoves for these pizzerias because it's really affecting uh, minorities. That's what they do. It's almost like that, uh, the, the, um, the Cookie Monster, the Cookie Monster um, episode in The Office when everybody's making fun of Kevin and there's other things going on. And, and Gabe, Gabe Lewis is, uh, I'm, I'm going to, you know, focus in on this cookie monster situation instead of real, uh, really uh, pressing matters that are going on inside the office. That's what it is. Because as long as you're getting paid, they don't care. Ultimately, don't, they don't care. And they understand what kind of degeneracy that they are sponsoring. 
Leftism requires dependency. It requires people and things and families and communities to fall apart because if they fall apart, there is no begging a higher authority to come in and try to patch things together. So they understand in some kind of unconscious way, subconscious way, or an untold way, totally conscious, that if they are not on board with this kind of degeneracy, they in turn will not have a job. That's, that's just what it is. Um, let's keep going. So large retailers are starting to flee the areas that have been hit the hardest and even include very wealthy cities such as San Francisco. Instead of working to fix our growing problems, our politicians are busy working to win their next elections. And for most of them, that means making appearances at pride parades that are taking place all over America this month. In New York, approximately 100,000 people marched in the Big Apple's world-famous pride parade on Sunday, and it was expected to draw roughly a million spectators. Spotted among the amalgam of drag queens and activists marching down Fifth Avenue figures were figures like Eric Adams, Kathy Hochul, Kathy Hochul, and Chuck Schumer. Three of roughly 100,000 participants taking part in the parade's main procession. This year's march, the 53rd in the city's history, is expected to draw roughly a million spectators while featuring some 60 floats that speak to the LGBTQ incorporated situation, not only in New York, but across the country. There's, a, there's absolutely no doubt about where the financial capital of the world stands. At one point, some participants in the parade began chanting slogans that caused great alarm, but the mainstream media will not report on it. Oh, the, what they were t- chanting is, we're here, we're queer, and we're coming for your children. Needless to say, the uh, mainstream media will not cover anything that puts such festivities in a bad light. During the Seattle Pride Parade, men that were fully exposed were allowed to participate. In the old days, that would get you arrested for indecent exposure. What the hell's that these days? But in our time, we celebrate that sort of thing. A, of course, there were lots of young children along the parade routes in Seattle and New York and other cities where such parades have been held this month. Their innocence is being stolen from them, but no one seems to care because this is what we have become as a nation. If it were, if we were given another 20 or 30 years, what would our society look like if we stayed on this trajectory? You may want to think about that because the truth is that time is running out for America. If we stay on the self-destructive path that we are on, we will reach the end of the road very rapidly. And so let us hope for a great awakening to happen soon. Now, um, now where's the slippery slope? Where on the slippery slope will we have slipped to by then? 20 or 30 years. On the issue of pride in particular and what's going on because as far as the social decay there's nothing else if you don't fix what's going on between the ears if you don't fix what's going on in the heart you don't find the spirit you don't bring people together and find common moral ground anymore then it's uh it it, it is all over it doesn't matter what's going on at the border there's no will there's there's nothing which we're just a fractured fractal society and that has always been the case how do you dilute a country that otherwise would never have been able to be conquered by any other means. How, do you, how are you able to dismantle them from within? How are you able to weaken and, uh, and debase and demoralize? Well, Spencer Clavin, he's a gay man, he put this out here 
and uh, in in some in many respects, it's very well reasoned. But obviously, he's coming from a standpoint where he wants to be able to make sure that it's a you know the world is a safe place for a gay guy to to do all the things that they're doing right now, but but not in this I guess in this beyond I don't know in this this pride kind of way. I think that there was there's a lot of questions now about where. The slippery slope could have stopped to be able to create a, I don't know, a, a balance point of moderation where, you know, we, we, we are, were able to stay cohesive. There wasn't an overcorrection. There wasn't an overreaching. But was it ever going to be possible to stop us from getting to where we are? And, that's, and he actually comes up with, the, with the, the question that I've asked many times, and that is, at what point could it have been stopped? At what point could you have, I mean, where was the line crossed? How far back can you have to go? Now, I want to read this one. Then there's a couple other things we can read in response to it. And then in the second half, I have more to put out there from an anthropological uh, standpoint that I think that you'll all find very interesting. Because it's really all talking about the sexual revolution and what the price has now what 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 the pay, what the price that we paid for so-called liberation that everybody talks about here's what he says listen to this let me weigh in now he's he's retweeting Dave Rubin who says most gays want nothing to do with that movement and was why I was always warning about these letters being jumbled together he's talking about this this LGB but not the T thing now, I've told plenty of my gay friends and family um, you you better at least watch out for the T's. I mean, I, I told uh, to to whatever degree they would listen. I would say these Supreme Court rulings, you can celebrate all you want, but it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for the union, for uh, a, rep- a republic. It's not a good thing at all. It's bad. It's a bad thing. And um, but I said from this standpoint, you better distance yourself from them T's. Because this is going to get really messy. And, uh, and it is. Listen to this, though. Spencer Cleveland says, Let me weigh in here with a thread about a, the slippery slope. I will touch on complicated subjects that arouse strong passions. There's probably no way to be as precise and detailed as the situation merits. But broadly speaking, here is, what, uh, here is where things stand as I see them. The sexual revolution demanded many profound changes to American social life and the laws that govern it. The issues involved including divorce, abortion, contraceptives, gay sex, and pornography. In every case, the trend was to maximize personal choice and weaken traditional norms. In some cases, that of the birth control pill, for instance, the fight was over what to do about new possibilities opened up by new technology. In other cases, such as no-fault divorce... It was more about reconsidering old rules that seemed unfair or overly restrictive. At this point, there emerges for me a worry about the relationship between philosophies and other and their outcomes because many of the changes on the table during and after the sexual revolution could have been justified on a number of different underlying grounds. For example, you could want birth control to be available because you think it will help people make responsible choices about when to have kids, or you could want it because you think it will make women the same as men and turn sex uh, into an inconsequentially pleasurable indulgence. See, the first thing, the first side of that is 
The first side of that is that uh, responsible choices. You don't need transhumanist technology to make responsible choices. Um, that, I mean, that's just, that this is where you can pick these apart. And listen, I'm not judging anybody for being on birth control, and I'm going to say it a couple of times as we go throughout this, ep- this episode. I, I'm, I'm presenting controversial, passionate Passionate, uh, you know, things that invoke passion, like Andrew, uh, like uh, Spencer Clavin, not Andrew. Spencer Clavin just said here, it's going to invoke a lot of passionate response. But I, in no way, shape, or form, want the to be di- coming off as didactic in any way because I'm not a moral authority on anything. I'm, I'm just really more, or more, uh, and more interested in the environment in which I was brought up, how it definitely affected me that I am learning more about it now, and, and, and uh, it, it's very interesting to me. Asking questions never had to ask before in my life. One of, these, one of those is the most, so let me read this one again. Uh, you could want, here's an example, you could want birth control to be available because you think it will be, it'll help people make responsible choices about when to have kids. Or you could want it because you think it'll make women the same as men and turn sex into an inconsequentially pleasurable indulgence. One of those is a moderate recalibration of an existing norm to incorporate newly available technology. Another is a step on an infinite revolutionary march toward a radical future. Now, there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Birth control, uh, to that respect, compared to what is definitely a, a social spear through the heart in trying to equalize men and women and destroy their nature and how they balance each other out, Yes, yes, it is moderate in in comparison to where we are there. Those two forms of justification can exist side by side in the same coalition. Moderate reformers can be talked to into making common cause with radicals because if even if they are proceeding from totally different first principles, they are moving temporarily in the same direction. If you are sprinting off of a cliff and I'm heading toward a jogging path that leads along to the ocean bluffs, we're going to be running in the same direction. It won't be clear that our logic is totally different until I turn right at the trailhead and you pitch headlong into the sea. Radical ideologies by their nature are stronger, simpler, and clearer than complex social policy. Let everyone do anything always is both crazier and louder than let people be free within ordered limits. Extremism is also like a path of least resistance. Naturally, conservatives saw the radical extremism that often did underwrite the sexual reforms of the 1960s and 70s, and they said these guys are sprinting off of a cliff. They were mocked remorselessly, but they were obviously onto something because gestures vaguely everywhere. Look, look at what we have now. There's nothing crazy or spiteful about pointing to the current mayhem and saying the slippery slope was an exact description of reality. Everything we said would happen did happen and is continuing to. That does leave you with a question, though. Where should we go back to? That's a question I've always been asking. To which point do we return? That was the, that was the, that was the, the, the farthest that we could bend without breaking. Because obviously we, we broke. We broke. Which point was the farthest we could bend to be a society that allows people? You remember, this is a, a a country is a we have a creedal culture in this country. That means a cult a culture that is attached to a creed, 
Our creed is the Constitution. There is a lot of, uh, that is a philosophical document there. It was written by men of faith. There is a lot there that, 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 that ties into faith and the Christian faith in particular. But this document is also there for people who have no faith, for people of different faiths. I mean, as opposed to going overseas and you are ethnically German, you are ethnically Italian, that's that's what it is. So that's why I say, where do we bend but not break? For me, taking everybody else into consideration that doesn't live like me, it's really just about making sure that wherever you are, that we are so decentralized that regional governments, that local governments, state governments, they are able to reflect the people who live there. And they aren't being strong-armed by a small little five-square-mile square swamp in, in Maryland or however long and big D.C. is right there. That's the real question for me, just based on the fact that there's not 340 million carbon copies of me out there who are all thinking the same way. You've got to allow bending without breaking. The problem is that when we were able to bend, the best was when we all had some kind of morality in, 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 uh, in common, something that bound us together. And if we were not on the same page with our moral compass, then we were still overwhelmingly on the same page as far as national identity goes. And what is good for the goose is good for the gander as, as it comes to you know, preserving a nation and the arena that we have over here to play with those rights and to see what new ideas can be tested against whatever the hell, throw it up against the wall. You know, that's the real question. Where do we go back to? Spencer continues. The results of the sexual revolution have affected almost everybody living today. There is probably almost no one whose life would look very different. Would not look very different if no-fault divorce, contraception, gay marriage, and obscenity law reverted to their pre-1960 state overnight. Now, this is going to be very controversial. But if we were to snap our figures, uh, fingers and bring society back to pre-1960, 1957, whatever the hell it is, Uh, and uh, apply it to however many people are in this country. Everything is the same except our mindset, our hearts. There would be no gay pride parades. And there would be far less gay uh, identifying children. Probably none at all. The whole point, the whole thing about this is that it opened up the gate, the gateway to this the society now that nurtures this into existence, and they are habits that can be formed. I mean, you talk to anybody, and you look into anybody who's ever had an addiction to pornography, how it can go. It, you start one place, you go somewhere else. There are many ways that people uh, that people find themselves living homosexual lifestyles, aside from trauma and everything. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many things that go on there. It's not just... How many millions and millions of dollars has been spent into trying to find the gay gene? There is no gay gene. Now, if you take away all of the nurturing mechanism that we have built up in our media, in, in, in government, in school, all this stuff, pharmaceuticals, what, whatever the hell is going on in our environment where everybody's being raised in this right now, 
you would still have one, two percent of the population that is gay. And, and people, the, life takes you places. And you, you just start expressing things in different ways. And, I mean, we can go into that one night. There's plenty of things I've read in the past. I didn't know. I didn't want to be too, uh, you know, in your face with it all. But there's plenty of things that we can talk about, about why, you know, this stuff might happen. I don't think it's all Satan. I don't think that Satan makes whales, male, uh, male uh, members of different species in the jungle and in the, in the deep blue sea copulate. You know, it, it's like that's, I don't think that's all there. Now, th- there, there, has been a, there has been very, very pronounced satanic appendages and accelerants to this, especially if you're looking to conquer a people and destroy them and destroy a family and burn God out of them. Uh, it, it is, uh, it, it's very telling what has been done. But this is a, a very touchy subject. You think about there, there'd be probably almost no one whose life would not look very different if no-fault divorce, contraception, gay marriage, and obscenity law reverted to their pre-1960 state overnight. Well, that is the case for many reasons. Many reasons. Pre-1960, we're still talking about the infancy, in, the, in many respects, the infancy of the national security state. Of what's going on. Um... If that happened, he said, we would somehow, if we could just somehow hit control Z on all of this, a lot of the effects might be pretty positive. We might enter into marriage more carefully if we didn't just dissolve it overnight, for instance. At the same time, some real injustices would need to emerge, would indeed emerge. There would be some women trapped in abusive marriages, some children born preventably, born preventably out of wedlock. And now you'd have the added complication of forcibly unraveled bonds that have been formed by modern logic. It's important to understand this because of how the radicals proceeded the first time because of how they always proceed. They would take an injustice created by a system that basically worked, something that reasonable moderates could agree in their own terms needed a little fixing, a little tweaking. And then the moderates would agree to loosen the system to, the, to fix the injustice, but inevitably, they, when they did so, they made common cause with those that wanted to dissolve the system altogether. They were moving for a time in the same direction. So uh, he goes on just a little bit more. He says, if you want to undo the changes we made, but we have no answer to the big problems that we that used to justify those changes in the first place, I suspect we are going to end up in exactly the same place, vulnerable to the exact same manipulation. Now, the real issue is, what was the big problem? What was, what was the real... You know, I, I love how you go into the... You go into the internet land a little bit there, and one people have... Um, let's see here... Um, one people, uh, some people will send a, what the hell is it just going to say? I just, um, I just blanked for a second. Um, the moderates would agree to loosen the system and fix injustice and never leave They would go on. They made common calls with those who wanted to. Okay. Whenever you see people portraying, um, marriage, have you seen, you probably have seen this. Especially when you have content creators that are just young and they have no perspective outside of what their feminist teachers have taught them about the horrors of living prior to the 1960s and 70s where all the, when all the bra burning started. Um, they portray every marriage as this 
this situation where the, the, the husband came home, the wife has been slaving all day, she hates her life, she prepares dinner, it's a little bit too cold, she gets slapped in the face, and then she gets raped before bed, and then she has to do it all again the next morning. I mean, this is predominantly how they, they portray life prior to these big countercultural revolutions, these cultural revolutions in society. I never saw that from any of my family members that the family members that, that got hitched prior to nineteen fifty. I saw stable, happy people. There's a lot I mean, what have have relationships gotten less abusive today than what you think they were fifty, sixty years ago? I mean, all we all people do is manipulate each other. And then with social media, I mean, we're a lot more distracted. We're a lot less in. T- I mean, there, there. I mean, how can you ever make this the, the the even the the most anecdotal, nonsensical suggestion that uh, that modern relationships are just so much more well balanced and exactly where they need to be. And meanwhile, modern men and women are unhappier than ever before. Women are unhappier statistically than ever before. Young men are just completely checking out of dating. Nobody want, people want less and less to do with each other. Now, there is a, there is a lot of people who are, are reaching back into the past and trying to understand where the hell we went wrong and what was so good about it back then. And they're finding things like faith. They're finding things like monogamy. They're finding, they're finding things, again, that have been told that were completely restrictive, retrograde, and harmful. But where do you go back to? Because you look in the streets on every weekend in June in this country, and this is a this is a lot more about having a uh, a, a little bit more of a looser and forgiving judicial system there for battered wives. Even though women commit battery inside of the house almost at the same clip as men do. So we keep talking about that. So uh, that's what I want to bring up. A little bit right now I, I mean there is one here's one response I'll give to you here's one response this this is came from uh, our our friend Aristophanes Aristophanes on on Twitter he responded to Spencer Cleveland thread and he doesn't seem to be willing to negotiate at all so this is probably going through some of your your uh, heads right now but I know that there's going to be a lot of you that are, are not going to go this far, and I, I want to throw this out into the, onto the table for consideration as well. Here you go. Aristophanes says, This is a very fine piece of well-reasoned sophistry, but the problem is that while in art- it's articulate and silky smooth argument, it is written entirely in Spencer Cleveland's, Clavin's own self-interest. He wants to protect children from predation and heal broken social norms, but he also still wants to have sex with men. There has been untold damage caused by the gay agenda and the sexual revolution as a whole. For what, really, though? What? For the right of men to have sex with each other. How many societal-level sacrifices was that worth from the self-interest of a straight person who isn't down for the D? From a purely perspective, uh, purely a perspective of the self-interest of normal people, uh, we were forced to give up what is turning out to be the vast amounts of societal stability effectively in exchange for nothing. 
there are no second or third order benefits derived from gay rights that benefit normal people. If you are a straight man, you've lost most of all. The way friendships are handled among men is strained compared to how it once was. We have to tolerate uh, contemptuous behavior shoved in our faces. Masculinity is jeered at. But at least cosmopolitan white women got a source of effeminate friends that they aren't in social or sexual competition with, right? That's a really interesting point. At least until the trans came along to dominate women in both competitive sports and the attention economy. Am I right? That's what he says. And those are very cogent points. Even the most hospitable and outwardly conservative, so-called conservative sweater vest-wearing respectable homosexuals ultimately end up carrying water for drag queens and transformers, normalizing such behaviors as, okay, those things were fine, but when it's around children, it's just too much. I remember society when those things weren't fine or socially acceptable at all. Uh, every normal person was still allowed to rightly express their disgust at mentally ill cross-dressers and flamboyant displays of dishonor toward masculinity like drag when outside of the fringes. And that's what I've always said before, too. Um, you know, the, 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 this whole idea of they're coming after drag, they're coming after drag. So no, no, we've always known where you can go find a crazy, debaucherous night. We always know where the strip clubs are, where the drag clubs are. If you're going, it's a bachelor bachelor party. You want to pull a prank on somebody instead of your you want you want to do something like that. We always knew where to find them. The problem is when and why did they start going into libraries and schools? I don't. I, why? What the hell was that all about? When I was 18, Aristophanes says, the first time I ever voted was on Prop 8 in California, the statewide reverent referendum on overturning recent gay marriage legislation. And we won, only for the federal government to eventually rule via executive fiat. This was as recent as 2008. It has become exceedingly obvious that an identity based entirely around transgression of social taboos and who, and who, won, um, and who won has sex with has our current state of affairs at its natural conclusion when allowed to take root in open daylight. And while our culture has been forcibly changed too much by a minority of conspiring actors over the course of a half century, just to control Z it is obvious that the only way, uh, it is obvious that the only way to stop the rot involves borrowing from the status quo and removing such progress root and branch. To put it another way, if Clavin was straight, would he have any incentive to feel the same way and be urging moderation in fixing these problems? Probably not. So, okay, there's Aristophanes going to hardline no. I'm sure many of you out there have some ideas of what what would be responsibly moderate way of starting to repair what's going on and back off, but, but there, there, there's so much at this point. To hold that up in the air, we, that we need to return to tradition because civilization is at stake, but also to say that we need to have some sort of special um, dispensations made at the same time is almost like, are you leaving that door open again? To fall down that slippery slope, if we can find, if we actually get to back to the top of the hill again, what happens? So I understand what people are saying, and it's, and it's a real tough question for me to, to answer. Very tough question. I have, you know, gay family, gay friends, all throughout my life and currently. 
and I, I love them no, no less than anybody else in my life. And um, but I, and I know, um, I know, uh, you know that th- they probably watch the LGBT Incorporated Madness and think, you know, I work my ass off to live peacefully, to be a good neighbor, and to avoid conflict, just like the next person. Just do my grocery shopping, balance my checkbook, and stay out of everybody's way. And they stay out of my. And, and we just, you just, what? That's it. But what happens when? something goes way too far what happens when we've been pushed to the brink where some people want to go get the pitchforks and there is an overcorrection so my question to you going into the second half where i have i'm going to take your calls first and then we will go into this uh anthropological work done by mr jd unwin very prophetic stuff but it's scientific it's not prophecy i want to ask you where should it have stopped And is there anywhere along the way where we could have attained a magical equilibrium or balance where we held a common sense of morality, we had a common sense of national identity, and where there there was some sort of don't ask, don't tell standard concerning people's private lives? Obviously, the media, the educational, the uh, psychiatric endorsement, the uh, pharmaceutical endorsement of this kind of pride month shit that's going on right now i mean that is a whole nother level you can see that this has been industrialized for a reason and it's not enriching society it's only pulling it apart but is there a way to have avoid getting to that corporate sponsoring of uh, essentially the wrecking ball to western civilization was there ever a way to find an equilibrium point is there a way to achieve anything through moderation um and if not what would prevent us from overcorrecting? That's what I want to talk to you about in the second half. I hope that I've been somewhat articulate, and we will be back in just a moment. It's intermission time, folks. Time out to press the like button. Thank you. Welcome to intermission. We'll, We'll be right back. Quite frankly. 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 Quite frank
quite frankly. How dare you? All right. Okay, so let's um let's get into some super chats. Let's take some calls. The number is 914-200-0269. 914-200-0269. We cannot go on like this. We cannot go on like this. But then what do you diagnose as the problem? And how do you prevent the mutation? Because let's be honest, let's be totally, uh, totally honest about this here too. Um, you're not only finding, you're not finding uh, deviancy. You're not finding lack of more. You're not finding a demoralized state in just homosexual men and women. I, I, I mean, they, there are, there are a lot, there are a lot of people, a lot of people who are straight that live even more disgusting lives than anything anything that you can you can throw onto any anybody else i mean we are in a just a, a bad situation right now and this is only one part of it it just magnified when we we're in the month of june which is now this this horrendous political black hole in the middle of the whole uh the whole con- the uh the whole calendar let's take a call oh look at this Timothy Gordon's calling in. What's going on, Timothy? What's up, Franklin? Hey, How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing well. How's everything over there in Mississippi? Oh, it's good. It's great. Man. So, so you're watching tonight. What's on your mind? I, this this should be good. Yeah, I was just thinking. I was thinking I had the uh, Sphinx's riddle answers for you here. Okay. <laughs> well, so you're asking, and, and I know I like I like Spencer Clavin. He was he was very nice to me and helped helped me out when I got fired. Uh, and he's a good good friend of a friend. Um, so I, but but yeah, I, I have to side with Aristophanes. Aristophanes, um, in in the context of the U.S. Constitution, our our credo, there's a really simple solution to all of this question about how far back we can go, and it all lies in just knowing a little bit about the history of the court, which uh, I was in your comments section trying to codify, trying to memorialize, and it, it just goes like this. The sex revolution was never fought and won in the, cult, in the popular culture or anything like that. It was actually the, um, the Burger Court and the Warren Court, who had uh, seven-ninths, and then in the 50s, the number rose to eight-ninths uh, masons, and all they did was undo the the real central credo of the u.s constitution which is federalism localism as a catholic we call it subsidiarity it's all the same thing it's just the old uh, you know the federal government does not hold a moralizing legislative power right article one section eight of the u.s constitution is only the unsexiest capacities to, to do things like post roads and all that uh, it's like 15 powers none of them are to legislate morality so it's essentially libertarianism at the federal level, but all of the 50 states called by good justices like the late great Scalia, uh, the, the forums of experimentation, 
the 50 states hold something called, according to the 10th Amendment, the police powers, which is the ability to regulate health, safety, welfare, morals, and security. So the 50 states are like 50 little laboratories of morality, and it was only in 1965 that SCOTUS, Supreme Court, under these Masonic headings, um, started making it illegal for the red states to ban in the little laboratories things like contraception, Griswold versus Casey. They banned the banning of that in 1965. In 1969, they banned, topped down the banning of porn in a case called Stanley versus Georgia. In 1973, they banned the banning in red states of abortion. 2003, uh, Lawrence versus Texas, they banned the banning by red states of uh, sodomy. And then, of course, in 2015, the Supreme Court banned the banning of gay marriage. This is supposed to be an issue that, that's up for red states to legislate the moralities at the, at the state level. And, and they, were, they essentially banned the banning of all these things from the top down. So the solution is to do what Dobbs did last summer Roe versus Wade for all of these things, so red states can be red. Yeah, but I, you know, I'm glad we're on the same page as that. It's all—it's what I've always said. The we have a uh, a culture here that needs to be restored. Whenever, whenever somebody talks about that whole national divorce, that's really what it's about. It's about divorcing ourselves from a central government that really. Uh, was designed to be so small and insignificant that it, it held almost no sway on our everyday lives, that it has mutated in no way that was voted on, debated, amended, nothing like that whatsoever. And all these, the, 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 the executive fiat that we, live, that we live by, the whims of whatever the, the makeup of this nine-panel this nine-seat panel of judges, uh, it, it, still to this day, there is just so much magic around that chamber at the Supreme Court, but they are literally just opinions. And opinions can and should be ignored when they are not within the purview of what is very clearly written on a very small piece of parchment. There's there's not a lot of rules there. And, um, and it's true. Once that is reestablished, if that is, then you are going to see a reinvigoration of uh, of, of American culture, especially on the, the local level, because that it's going to finally reflect people again and what's really important to them. Not only that, but people are going to have to be more resourceful locally because there's less to depend on Washington, D.C. for. I mean, this, 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 this titty-sucking nature that we have, this relationship between uh, D.C. and every small community in this country where there's some federal money trickling in for obedience one way or another, once that's gone, then you really just have no reason to stay loyal to anything other than the people who live next to you. And I think that's where you really start getting down to the nitty-gritty of what it is to live in a, uh, a, a free nation. Absolutely. One, one commenter in your comm box has said that courts legislated immorality upon us, and that's correct. I think a lot of people need to understand there's not two options here. It's not a bifurcation. It's a trifurcation. Right now, what's really fashionable among conservatives, particularly, you know, my tribe, Catholic conservatives, is to say, well, let's let's legislate top-down from Washington, D.C., a kind of continent-wide morality, and that's what it is. These people need to go reread Aristotle's politics, Thomas Aquinas' treatise on law, Bellarmine Suarez, 
none of these four guys, in my view, the topmost four Catholic political thinkers, none of these four guys want continent-wide government. The whole point of America was to enshrine the idea that local localities decide for themselves as a natural law principle. That's what federalism is. And, of course, I'm going to move to a, a red state that makes these things illegal, that, that literally illegals, illegalizes them. And, and Spencer Clavin does have a conflict of interest there, as Aristophanes said. I'm going to go to a red state, but I don't want it done from Washington, D.C. for the whole fucking continent, the way Adrian Vermeule or Gladden Tappan or Patrick Deneen or any of the, the reverse countervailing top-down guys want. I want locality, and that's that's what's truly the natural law principle. Um, and it was articulated 2,500 years ago by the master of those who know, Aristotle, and it's the solution. Uh, Tim, this is a, a really awesome awesome call i'm glad you this is the first time you ever just dropped in on the phone this is awesome i, ho- I hope you do it more often yeah yeah it was great man all right great show. hey before you go you you have anything uh you have any streams coming up lately you want to plug or next yeah, tomorrow t- tomorrow will be a real good one on my channel on timothy gordon on uh youtube it, it should be a it should be a zesty one uh on marital sexual ethics uh, people, people love that okay and uh yeah we've been and talking about what happened to the goodly Bishop Strickland there in Texas, how Pope Francis is really uh, coming down with the full force of a tyrant on him, speaking of centralized power. Well, I, I, I'll i be on the lookout for that one, man. I hope you have a good one and send my best to the, the uh, whole family. You too, my brother. All Peace. right. Take care. All right. Let's take another call. Randy from Colorado. What do you think? Hey, how's it going, Frank? It's going well. So, so what are you thinking on, on this? Uh, where... Where should we have stopped? Where's the bend without the break? Timothy Gordon just said, well, uh, from a, a uh, creedal standpoint, as an American, it really is just about first and foremost reestablishing the constitutional order that we have, or at least the, the local decentralized decision-making order that we had. But um, I don't know. You can, you can comment on anything in that respect. Okay. Well, I, I just want to give you kind of my uh, uh, take on it and I was born in 1959 and on uh, Thanksgiving so uh, you know I kind of got a spectrum here and what I noticed when I was growing up um, you know in the 60s up until the 80s the uh, topic of, uh, of homosexuality was very taboo my dad was a psychologist he used to come home and, and, you know, once in a while uh, expound on maybe one of his clients that, uh, you know, was uh, uh, involved in, in the gay experience. Anyway, uh, it wasn't until I was 18, uh, which would be 78, I joined the service and uh, got to know a, a, a person that was in the service uh, and he he was gay and i remember taking leave with him uh we were both musicians so uh you know i i, I got to know him quite well but we went down to austin uh down on sixth street uh he wanted to go to a gay bar well it it, it was uh, the, the the bars uh there was maybe two i think at that time and this was 1980 um, so it was very novel. I remember walking in with him and 
seeing the Cowboys, uh, you know, doing the two-step uh, with each other. And it was very novel, and we had a good time. And, you know, okay, well, after that, it was, it, it, it seemed like from 1980 on that it, it was equated with being um, free like we were with the, uh, the, the sexual uh, freeness of the 60s. Mm-hmm. But it really it was disguised. It, it it was it was almost it was almost like injected into the rock and roll, uh, you know the long hair, uh, you know uh, hair bands. It, it seemed like that it 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 was started there. And I may be wrong, but just that's that's kind of just a. a a glimpse in terms of what I see it as. What so you, do you think? So you so you think that it was uh, you you say that you saw that from the eighties that it really just started getting injected into into everything. Like you, when you you bring up hair bands, are you talking about like you know the the, the cover of a Poison album where you have everybody yeah. that are just glammed up and they look like women and there's just this spandex and teased hair and all that other stuff and it you think yeah. that, that it, it was right. it was the it was delivered in ways like that yes and and the advertising started changing at that time i remember being in the service and kind of really seeing a big difference uh in terms of the hair uh just hair in general um, I remember even getting a, a, a Article 15 for having my hair long. I worked nights at the hospital, so I was kind of liberal. I used to dippity do my hair back, and I uh, got caught. But anyway, going back to it, yeah, I could see it in several different ways. But really, the hair bands and um, and, and and I guess the programming on TV was was kind of a thing so well you know thank you so much for the call randy i want to i can't wait until you i think you're going to really get a uh i don't know i think you're going to take something really nice away from the or interesting a lot of intrigue away from what i have lined up over here good call uh, especially from the perspective of how on an individual level you can see you might have observed different things being pushed into the public consciousness and in many ways co-opted because again, homosexuality is not a 20th century concoction. You know, it's more so about how is something like this co-opted, expanded upon, weaponized, politicized. And what's the point? How else would you have conquered America through, uh, other, through other than uh, movements like this? That's how it's been, I, in my view instrumental for what we're dealing with in a uh, in a political and a socio-political sense right now so let's take another call john john what's up hey frank it was when in my time the uh billy jean king and uh, bobby riggs or something they uh did the girl against boys sports things and the tennis game uh-huh remember that uh, no, now you were born. That's a little behind. But that's what happened when the shit started, and it was like, like what the fuck? Why would a guy think that? But this girl was like that girl that was like beating up on the guy, and you know that's kind of when it started for me. And I'm talking, this was like, I don't know, it's 
if it was after the bicentennial or not. Remember the bicentennial? No, you don't remember that either. But you know history. But that's when we went to uh, uh, Carter was president, and he made everything uh, metric, right? Right. And then the next year, they said, fuck that. We're still staying with inches and everything else. Right? I learned all that metric shit, and I got good at it. And it's smart to do with science, and it makes it easy. But, yeah, that's when that shit got crazy. I'm, right. I'm, I'm, so what do you think about that? No, I, you know what, John? I'm that John from, from Connecticut. Thank you so much for the call. I, there's there's a lot. There's a lot. Billie Jean King. I, I, then again, if people are really good at what they do, and they happen to be gay, or if you just think about, I mean, you th- think about Freddie Mercury. Uh, the guy was was pretty gay, but it, it was one of those things where I I still. I grew up in a time where there are still just more so rumors about how a certain person lived out of the public life, but they didn't want to bring their bedroom habits or anything like that into, into you know, to interfere with their art. And there's always stuff like that going on, especially in art circles and theater. And I mean, because again, per- certain personalities, certain backgrounds, what people are running from, what they're trying to compensate for. Then there is just the access to vice. There's access to, to, to so many things. And then your tastes evolve and you try something else because something else, you know, it, it, indulgence, overindulgence, and then chasing that pink elephant. There's so many things that happen. And, but there's so many different ways that you can see, you can see the evolution of how they have, they've changed. You know, um, it's been a long time since the, you know, the, the news of Rock Hudson dying um, and, you know, this one or that one being a, uh, a lesbian. This one, I mean, there's a lot of pay to play, especially in entertainment. Uh, you remember you remember John Travolta? You remember when John Travolta has said every once in a while, every couple of years, I take out uh, the, the best bits of the John Travolta masseuse sex harassment case? All the things that the masseuse said John Travolta was saying to him as he was trying to get him to hook up with him. And what was the one thing he said? He made a comment about, how do you think I got the gig on Welcome Back, Cotter? And he said, I, you know, you have to sexual favors. And then after a while, he actually started liking it. Um, we know political lesbianism is a thing. You can look in, you know, just go uh, do a Google search of political lesbianism. And it doesn't, it doesn't it doesn't uh, represent all lesbians, but I, I'm just saying there's just so many ways to get there. And when you have more and more of a society and it's cultural institutions, it's cultural centers that pick up on these things and they start massaging slowly, but surely they start prioritizing certain people over certain, certain messages over other messages, certain backdrops, certain themes, what kind of writers, what screenplays are they picking for their, their spring season? Um, you know, where are things going and what message are they pushing until it gets to the point where everybody is subconsciously just in a groove and you can do things more out in the open. I mean, for Christ's sake. And, uh, it, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that in, I really don't mean that in, in taking his name in vain. What the hell are we talking about here with the Bidens right now? Okay. What in God's name are we talking about with the Bidens right now? It's not just about uh, misreported taxes. There is incest. 
you have Hunter Biden canoodling with his dead brother's underage daughter in this thing. Ashley Biden, her diary, all the problems that that, that, uh, James O'Keefe had because the diary was actually legit. Ashley Biden talking about her her fear of having to put up with another inappropriate visit from her father in the shower. I mean, this is this is. I, I mean that that's just all out. You want to talk about things that are? It's almost like they're trying to catch society up to how the people who run the show live their lives. They're trying to catch us all up. It seems that way. It really does, doesn't it? You know, for everybody, everybody giving their opinion on whether or not Hunter Biden's tax issues and his international business dealings is a real concern for the Biden presidency or just a personal family problem. They all divert their attention away from the, the, the level and the nature of the sex crimes that are in there. It's incredible. That's incredible shit that has been uh, eyes just tur- totally, totally turned away. So where should it have stopped? Where should it have stopped? I have a little something for you. Well, let me get to some super chats, and then I want to read something for you. Um, quite frankly, superchat.com. Let's see who's in in it to win it now with this book. And to just say hello. Stosub says, just a super chat contribution. Thank you, quite frankly. Thank you, Christos and Sarah and the whole crew over there in Massachusetts. Shotzi says, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, Shotzi. Yeah, I really appreciate you. Herman. Herman. Well, if I don't know if this is really Herman. Herman says, I have crowdfunded plane tickets, and I'm coming to put my hands on you. Well, that's appropriate for tonight. Thank you, Herman. It looks like I'm getting Hermanized soon. Katie Skye says, uh, Katie for book club winner. Vote for Katie. <laughs> well, you never know. Now you're in it. You could win it. Statistically, you have just as good a chance as everybody else. All right. Over on Rumble. Everybody's having a good time over there. We have one Rumble rant. I encourage you guys to send them on over because I, uh, I, I comb through them more than once, sometimes more than three times throughout the night. Texas Sue says, in 72. Everybody's having a good time over there. Shut up, Frank. In 72, my dad did a quick U-turn. As we were driving down the main street in Key West on our family vacation, he had no idea it was a haven for gays in hot pants. I didn't know what was going on. Age 12. So he had to get out. We have to get out of here. Quick. Gays in hot pants all over the place. Fort Lauderdale. Daisy Dukes on men. Oh, well, you know, it's, uh, I guess, again, you got a bunch of kids in the car and it's like a scene out of the birdcage. You got to turn around. Now, um, that's <laughs> just what you got. All right, Sean Joe, thank you for the cookie. Thank you so much, Robert Sarns. Thank you, Sean Joe, again. Space Coast Patriot says Callahan, Tommy Boy, yes. Callahan. Matt, 1776. Oh, look at that. The CEO, one of the founders of Foxholes in there, said iPhone app now has push notifications. DM me. Uh, DM me a note, uh, DM me a pic of notification on your Android or phone for 100 gold pills. So you can DM Matt right now with a pic of notification on your Android or iPhone app for 100 gold pills. There you have it, which is, I, I believe, a, a dollar. 
Uh, Space Coast Patriots says, I can hear you and focus on, uh, I can hear you and focus on Chris Farley. And again, they won't turn Michael, or they won't rum Michael in 2024 because they use trans to go after our kids. Oh, run Michael. Oh, Michelle. Okay, I get what you're saying there. They won't run. You said rum. And boys, Blanc, thank you so much. All right, now listen to this. Very fascinating stuff right here. This was published in 2019 by Kirk Durston. The headline is, Why Sexual Morality May Be Far More Important Than You Ever Thought. Far more important than you ever thought. And again, I wanted to just say, I don't want this episode to come off as didactic because I am not a moral authority on anything. I am, however, as I said before, increasingly interested about the environment in which I was raised, the culture, and how and why it may have shifted. Um, so this, this is what we're going to do here. This is all about the work of one J.D. Unwin. Listen to this because we're going to read about maybe a page and a half. One winter afternoon, I was relaxing with a half dozen fellow graduate philosophy students discussing theories of law and punishment. About an hour into the discussion, it occurred to me that some moral laws are necessary because although they might limit pleasure and enjoyment in the short term, they actually minimize suffering and maximize human fulfillment in the long term. A few days ago, I finished studying Sex and Culture for the first time. It's a remarkable book summarizing a lifetime of research by Oxford social anthropologist J.D. Unwin. The 600-plus page book is Unwin's, in Unwin's word, is only a summary of his research. Seven volumes would be required to lay it all out. His writings suggest that he was a rationalist, believing that science is our ultimate tool of inquiry. It appears that he was not a religious man. As I went through what he found, I was repeatedly reminded of the thought that I had as a philosophy student. Some moral laws may be designed to minimize human suffering and maximize human flourishing long term. Unwin examines the data from 86 societies and civilizations to see if there is a relationship between sexual freedom and a flourishing of, cur- of cultures. What makes the book especially interesting is that we in the West underwent a sexual revolution in the late 1960s, 70s, and 80s and are now in a position to test the conclusions he arrived to more than 40 years earlier. Unwin's cultural categories. So what are the categories that he broke these down into? Unwin described four great patterns of human culture and degrees of flourishing measured in terms of architecture, art, engineering, literature, agriculture, and so forth. The primary criterion for classification was how they related to the natural world and the forces it contains. The first one is zoistic, entirely self-focused on day-to-day life, wants and needs with no interest in understanding nature, described as a dead culture or inert. Then there is a monistic that is uh, acquires superstitious beliefs and or special treatment of the dead to cope with the natural world. Then you have a deistic, that is to attribute the powers of nature to a god or gods. And then a rationalistic category, that is use rational thinking to understand nature and to make day-to-day decisions. Now there are unwinds degrees of sexual restraint that he applies to all these. He made these different categories over these years. 
Degrees of sexual restraint were divided into two major categories, prenuptial and postnuptial. Prenuptial categories were as follows. Complete sexual freedom, no prenuptial restraints at all. That is completely no sexual restraints prior to marriage. Number two is irregular or occasional restraint. Cultural regulations require an occasional period of abstinence. And then there is number three, strict chastity. Remain a virgin until married. Now in the postnuptial categories, we had this. Modified monogamy. One spouse at a time, but association can be terminated by either party. That's, where, that's really what we have right now. Modified polygamy. Men can have more than one wife, but a wife is free to leave her husband. Absolute monogamy. Only one spouse permitted for life or until death in some cultures. And then you have absolute polygamy. Men can have more than one wife, but wives must confine their sexual qualities to their husband for the whole of their lives. So what did Unwin find? I have prepared a 26 collection, a 26 page collection of quotes from his book to summarize his findings, but even that would leave you with a significant underappreciation of the rigor and fascination, the fascinating details revealed in data from 86 cultures. Here are a few of his most significant findings. Number one, effective sexual constraints. Increased sexual constraints, either pre or post nuptial, always led to increased flourishing of a culture. Conversely, increased sexual freedom always led to the collapse of a culture within three generations. Keep that in mind, all right? Um, and also, I, this, is the kind, this is a conversation I'd love to have someone like um, Robert Sepper on with me too, because he's an anthropologist, and he's also done really deep dives into things like uh, the harvesting of sexual energy, cultural, uh, cultural outlooks on things like prana and all that other stuff, um, your louche, pretty much life force, how people cultivate sexual energy and focus it instead of expending it, you know, jacking off into a, a sock and just becoming um, compulsive with, you know, orgasming all over the place and shit like that. Um, how do focus it? You can see the effect of that, those constraints, flourishing societies, culture, art, all that stuff. It, it may be in some ways that you have a lot more focused sexual energy that allows you to express it in different ways that isn't totally deflating, perhaps. Number two, single most influential factor. Surprisingly, the data revealed that the single most important correlation with the flourishing of a culture was whether prenuptial chastity was required or not. It had a very significant effect either way. Highest flourishing of culture. The most powerful combination was prenuptial chastity coupled with absolute monogamy. Rationalist cultures that retained this combination for at least three generations exceeded all other cultures in every area, including literature, art, science, furniture, architecture, engineering, and agriculture. Only three out of the 86 cultures studied ever attained this level. And remember, that's a rationalist culture, too. Those are people who are not even relying on faith in God, but they are just relying on some sort of very strict cultural norms that are being put together as guidelines for their citizens for one reason or another. That's incredible. Only three out of 86 cultures studied ever attained that level. I wonder what those three were. I got to get into this. 
Number four, the effect of abandoning prenuptial chastity. When strict prenuptial chastity was no longer the norm, absolute monogamy, deism, and rational thinking also disappeared within three generations. And then you have number five, total sexual freedom. If total sexual freedom was embraced by a culture, that culture collapsed within three generations to the lowest state of flourishing, which Unwin described as inert and at a dead level of conception and is characterized by people who have little interest in much else other than their own wants and needs. At this level, the culture is usually conquered or taken over by another culture with greater social energy. Wow. <laughs> Wow-wee. Ain't that a... Oh, man. Well, let's keep going. One more. One more. Most, most interestingly enough, the time lag. If there is a change in sexual constraints, either increased or decreased restraints, the full effect of that change is not realized until the third generation. So you just count the generations since the 1960s and early 1970s, all right? Do the math in your head. How does this compare with our culture today? We're going to do two more segments. Unwin predicted his findings in 1936, along, long before the sexual revolution that occurred in the West. We now have an opportunity to test his conclusions by observing if our own culture is following the predicted pattern. Unwin's generation appears to be approximately 33 years, so it should take about a century for us to see the cultural changes take full effect, but we are far enough along in the process that we should be able to observe certain predicted effects. Prior to the sexual revolution, which began in the late 1960s, prenuptial chastity was still held in strong regard by Western culture. But starting in the 1970s, premarital sexual freedom became increasingly acceptable. By the early 2000s, the majority of teens were sexually active to the extent that remaining a virgin until marriage was regarded with disbelief, if not ridicule. I know we all felt that. At the same time, our culture moved from a social uh, a, uh, moved from a social norm of absolute monogamy to modified monogamy, and now unwins predictions for our culture. This is where we'll end. Thanks to the rationalist generations that preceded them, the first generation of a society setting aside its sexual restraints can still enjoy its newfound sexual freedom before any significant decline in culture. But the data shows that this having your cake and eating it too phase lasts a maximum of one generation before the decline really sets in. Unwin wrote the following. The history of these societies consists of a series of monotonous repetitions, and it is difficult to decide which aspect of the story is the more significant. The lamentable lack of original thought, which, is, uh, which in each case the reformers displayed, or the amazingly al uh, al uh, alacrity, with which, after a period of intense compulsory continence, sexual restraint, the human organism seizes the earliest opportunity to satisfy its innate desires in a direct or perverted manner. Sometimes a man has been heard to declare that he wishes both to enjoy the advantages of high culture and to abolish compulsory continence. The inherent nature of the human organism, however, seems to be such that these desires are incompatible, even contradictory. The reformer may be likened to the foolish boy who desires to both keep his cake and to consume it as well. Any human society is free to choose either to display great energy or to enjoy sexual freedom. The evidence is that it cannot do both for more than one generation. And that 
is why Timothy Gordon probably said it, why Aristophanes, in a little bit more scientific way of putting it out there, uh, may conclude that Spencer Clavin is trying to have his cake and eat it too. I can understand that. But again, it applies to all of us. It really applies to all. This, this is not about, hey, let's, let's talk about the gays tonight. It, it really isn't. We all have problems. We really do. Because um, we've all been targeted. Uh, it, it's, um, it's incredible. So he's saying looking at our, our own sexual revolution, the having your cake and eating it too phase would have lasted into the early 2000s. We are now at a stage where we should begin to observe the verification or falsification of Unwin's predictions. What do you think? What do you think about Unwin's predictions in his work? Do you think that there's any merit to that at all? Uh, we're going to take your, more of your calls after we get back from break. So, uh, so yeah, don't go anywhere. You're not going to get it started that way. Well, I'm just getting ready. You know, I'm about 32% done my restoration. Protect feminism or low gas prices? Oh, I'm always about lowering the gas prices for sure. Why? Absolutely. Uh, well, I think feminism's a demonic movement created by Satan to emasculate men, to get them out of the biblical order that God created. Um, and I don't even drive like a gas-powered car. I drive a Tesla. I just don't like feminism. So, it's cringe. <laughs> I didn't hear what you said, Tone. So I'm going to talk fast. The guy you're looking for is an ex-commando. He killed 16 Chechen rebels single-handed. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, nice, huh? He was with the Interior Ministry. Guy's some kind of Russian Green Beret. This guy cannot come back to tell this story. You understand? I hear you. Oh? Oh, you there? I Call me back! You're not gonna believe this. He killed 16 Czechoslovakians. Guy was an interior decorator. His house looked like shit. Here's a fun fact for you, because I went uh, after I found this uh, this article. I went and I I wanted to learn more about J.D. Unwin. And Aldous Huxley had a little something to say about J.D. Unwin. Aldous Huxley, a brave new uh, brave new world fame, he described Aldous Huxley described sex and culture, which is the work that we just talked about here. Uh, what some of those excerpts came from. Aldous Huxley described sex and culture as, quote, a work of the highest importance in his literature. And for those of you who just read Brave New World with us in March for book club with Jay Dyer and I, you know exactly how and why hypersexual behavior was introduced to the children at the hatchery as young as toddler age. 
with the erotic play and all that stuff. You 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 understand what the the sexual infiltration was all about, and you also know from our deep dives with Jay Dyer from which uh, perspective. Aldous Huxley was writing. He was a Royal Society man. He was more of an apologist for what had been designed for us and our culture going forward. He wasn't a Paul Revere. So even Aldous Huxley gave a nod to J.D. Unwin and and his work. So I would say go ahead and check that out. If you want the link, you can give me, uh, send me an email or I can put it out there. I'll put it in the in the chat rooms right now so you can read it yourself. Um, what else do we have? What else do we have? Yeah, so we're going to open up the lines now. Open up the lines. You can see, you, know, you, you can see uh, why. I mean, you, you can't talk about, you can't talk about gay pride parades and the, the corporate front that is LGBTQ incorporated. You can't talk about gay pride parades, you can't talk about transgenderism, you can't even talk about the sexualizing of children, which is how this is all progressed, without first talking about feminism and the sexual revolution. You can't do it. If you don't talk about feminism, you're missing the prequel level material about what this is all about. So, let's take some Take some calls, 914-200-0269, 914-200-0269, something you just gotta, wow, is it really all like this? Yes. Let's take a call from Flat Albert. What's going on, Albert? Uh, not a whole lot, just loving the show. I'm glad. As usual, but isn't it, and first of all, you can talk. Or you can talk about. Can you get this, Can uh, you get a little bit a little bit closer without talking about feminism and uh, all the other stuff? Hey, hey, Albert, you just got to Yeah. Can you get a little bit closer to the receiver? Is this better? A lot better. Okay, go ahead. You can talk about that stuff. You just got to not give a fuck. You know what I'm saying? Of course. And that's a problem. And uh, you know everybody. I think that, I mean, just that statement in and of itself where we're walking around and everybody's being afraid to talk about this or that, you just got to really take a don't give a fuck attitude. And because uh, I don't give a fuck and nobody ever says anything to me. And if they did, well, then we may have a problem. But as far as, um, you know, what you're describing as, as the issue and where did it start and, you know, what do they say in uh you always pronounce it as anima you know fuck your short memories you know weimar germany this this all played out before i mean they've played this thing out before and it works really good the only difference is now they've got chemicals and drugs and they've got media uh, a lot more social social media do that with yeah, they got so they got social media. They got the drugs. That I mean, they've got. Uh, I, I mean, I guess well, psychiatry has always been weaponized, but it's just it's so much. Uh, it's so much more. But uh, that's a great point. I mean, Weimar Germany. You, you look at that and you say, well, uh, how did the society correct, and was it an overcorrection? And what? And, and where do you go back to? To at what point do you go back to where? There is stability without there being pitchforks and witch hunts and all that other stuff. And uh, is that just? Well, a f- let's look at let's look at what uh, your 
uh, what was it, Timothy Gordon said. Mm -hmm. He said uh, earlier in the call, he, or earlier in the show, he said, you know, that they made these laws back in the 60s, and they made it top-down and whatnot. And it, it, the fish rots from the head down. And, I mean, right now, I mean, we've talked about it before, that it, it comes all the way down to the local levels right now. So the question isn't really, you know, well, how can we turn this around uh, and what can we do different, like, at this point? Because right now, from the top down, they're shoving it in your damn face and they're saying, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and to your point, though, when you say you walk around and just not care, I understand not letting it affect you to, and to be able to spot what is a scam, to spot messaging coming from a mile away and not letting it affect you and not being swayed by it. But there, there, also, there also should be a, a some sort of a, um, is there no d desire to, 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 con to contribute at all to the hopefully some sort of a, a healing yeah, you're not going to heal this, dude. No, you're right. I'm it's got to be pulled I, up I, by I'm, the roots. I, I got to. I listen. I have to at least ask the question. I think I'm. I'm. I'm pretty. Uh, I'm pretty much with you on that one. If I say there's no reconciliation for Washington D.C., how can there be reconciliation for this? It's driven by the same demonic presence. So I'm with you. But exactly, I, it, I have to at, ask the question. You you're a perfect example of it because the thing is, is dude, you grew up. Your dad's gay. You have gay people around you all the time. You have people of color around you all the time. I grew up uh, almost the same. But the thing is, is, you know, you want to talk about tolerance. I mean, who's tolerance? You, I was talking to Lisa. I'm like, you are the most in the middle person that I know. And you are completely fed up. So what do you think somebody like me is like? <laughs> Good point. So that's all I got to say. It's great here. Brother. It's Enjoy always your, uh, day. It's always right. great here. Hey, hey, Albert, do you, do you, do you, uh, wait. Wait! <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. I'll get it on the next time. 914-200-0269. So what do you think? J.D. Unwin? We are in a, we are living at a perfect time to see this man's work. All that work really be put to the test. Is it validating or is it falsifying? Is it validating or is it falsifying? Raymond Rosenberry just sent me a super chat on quitefranklysuperchat.com. Said churches' mouths got gagged when they had to stay out of political conversations to keep a tax exemption. Feds meddling in every aspect where they have no business sticking their nose. Oh, yeah. Listen, the, the churches, the local congregations, this was the front line of everything. We were the we were the, the land of a thousand of a million churches. I, I was reading a little bit more about just the, the infighting that's going on within the Methodist church. I mean, it's everywhere. The Catholic Church is the biggest one out there, so it's the easiest um it's the easiest to pick on and it's got all, all the history and all the, the dark and the darkness and all that other shit going on there. But I mean it's really it's something else.
It really is something else when you see what's going on in, in many tinier congregations that are still have thousands and thousands of churches that you see defections because they don't want to give in to the lesbian deacons and they don't want to give in to the pride celebrations in mass and all the other in, in the services and all that stuff. It's all over the place. There's lines drawn in the sand and that is just the latest line drawn in the sand. Because as you, as you said before, Mr. Rosenberry... The gagging, uh, that was a long time ago. And again, tax exemption. That is the inverse of getting a state to go along with one, uh, one unconstitutional initiative or another based on being able to dangle the block grants in front of their face for, hey, uh, you want to lose your tax exempt status? Or, hey, do you want to lose all of your highway money? It pulls everything that could stand in the way of a roving political monster that is government. It pulls everything that stands, truly stands in the way out of its way by shackling it. Because that's the ultimate check and balance. It's people, it's communities who just refuse to go along with it and the autonomy that those communities have right down to the sheriffs you have in your district, in your county, your county sheriff can BTFO the entirety of the uh, the federal government. That's it. And 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 uh, even their own governor. That's it. That think about the, the real checks and balances there. The problem is that people, that's why they, they screwed with um, civic education. People's uh, being able to get educated properly on civics. Uh, because most people really don't think that they have any kind of power in the face of what we today see government they think they have no power they never been they haven't been taught what kind of power they have they had that it's game over it's very hard to get people to get you know get woke that's the original way that we were trying to use that's the original way people were using woke by the way i am old enough to remember when woke uh was not uh was not ironic in its use. So you you got to get woke to that. So anyway, let's take another one. Take a call from Norwood. Oh, I haven't heard from Norwood in a while. I'm so happy to see him calling. What's going on, man? Hey, how you doing, Frank? Oh, it's going. It's going. How is the family? Wonderful. Wonderful. I, I live heaven, Frank. Literally, I live heaven. I love to hear it. I really do. But, you know, um, you described it best because it, it always, it always, it never set well with me when when uh, people would describe others' actions as, as hypocritical. And I recognize that it's not hypocritical if if people have no principles, if they're just simply making statements that are convenient for them. And you described it as a as a psyop, and that's exactly what these people are, are running. They're running a, a psyop on everyone, and and that that convinces people to be to be hesitant. They don't respond to it appropriately because it's now now because a rational person saying, "Well, that doesn't make sense," and an irrational person saying, "Well, yes, it does make sense," and something's wrong with you. The rational person always coils back. Because, you know, there, there's always that, that thought that, okay, maybe I am wrong. But in this situation, 
rational people need to be more proactive. Rational people need to be much more aggressive in, in their pronouncements because the, the crazy people, they, they have nothing to lose. You know, I, I was watching um, uh, Don, Don Lemon. Don Lemon makes a statement, I guess, last week or this week sometime, and he comes out and he talks about how important it is for CNN to not uh, give liars a, 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 a platform to tell their lies. Don Lemon said that, and he said that with so much conviction and so much comfort that a, that a rational person will look at it and say, well, well, maybe he is right. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that they play on. What we have to do, what the righteous have to do, is number one, remember, the righteous outnumber the wicked. And this is a, this is a battle of the righteous and the wicked. And, but you have some righteous people who are not convicted enough to actually fight for, fight for the righteous. They will, call, they will cower to the wicked because the wicked make them uncomfortable. And it's not time for those weak people and those, those people who are going to be uncomfortable. The righteous always stand in righteousness. And what, what the, the gentleman said uh, um, earlier about you, and this is why your show is just so, so extraordinary, man. I'm sure your show, your show is, and I'm not telling you something that you don't know. I just want you to know that it's something that I know. Your show is phenomenal, Frank. And it, it, is, it, is, it is profound and on every level. It is insightful on every level, but it's considerate at the same time on every level. And that's something that you don't see in public voices. You don't see all, all three of those things combined. And, it, and it's, it's really wonderful to watch you do your thing. And over the last seven years, are consistent and eventually the things that you said seven years ago become are 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 actually acknowledged seven years later by the same people who have who've had much larger platforms who had much larger audiences have been kind of wishy-washy on and just one one last thing the, the primary example i give you is is dan bongino Dan Bongino in the is just now coming along, coming uh, coming to the realization that the FBI is corrupt, but he still won't say they're corrupt. That word will never come out of his mouth. He will say that you know they're weaponized, and that's what that's what we can use. It's those types of terms that we can use to identify the 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 righteous. Who are too weak to actually make a stand they're not actually righteous they're pretending to be righteous because there's a much different different uh they're, they're, the description of the of the fbi the description of these uh three-letter agencies the description of our of our federal government and the politicians is corrupt individuals they're not weaponizing the government they are corrupted individuals, and their corruption leads them to make decisions that are detrimental, that are contrary to their jobs, because it's, it's, anti, it's, it's anti-America, 
but it's detrimental to the individuals that they purport to represent. You know, but again, I, I appreciate you, man. I, I, I appreciate you, and over and the, I know I speak for. No, I'm sorry. I speak I'm sorry. For millions of people, man. Norwood, you know you appreciate you and I, what you do. I believe you. I believe you, and uh, and I and I'm so um, I'm very very humbled by that. And I know that you've been watching for a long time. So I t I I always take compliments like that very very strongly. It humbles me. It keeps me on. It keeps me in in a good working. Uh, you know, I I don't know uh, a good a good line of sight. It keeps me in my lane and and uh, holds me accountable in many ways. And I gotta say. Um, I, the first thing you had said about irrational people coming into contact with rational people, it is more so to be, to recoil as a rational person that comes in, into, you know, a, a confrontation with those who are just driven by something else to recoil and say, oh, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I, I think there's a large amount all the my days of double guessing myself on uh, on certain issues they are very far behind me at this point what it does do for me and i thank you for the call and i always love when you call and i wish you was you would do it more uh what it does do for me is it gives me pause as to assessing what kind of a of a person i'm dealing with and that's really the the big thing here it's okay. It's one thing to say, all right, well, I'm going up against somebody uh, in a conversation here who is on the absolute wrong side of history. They would need to be properly educated before they can even be dialogued with because they don't even understand what language I'm going to start using right now. We're going to talk about social issues and they think that this is all organic or if they think of trans people. I mean, what, what's going on right now is just normal human evolution being expressed at just the right time in the last 10 years or whatever the hell it is. It's more so about not questioning whether or not I, oh, maybe I got this wrong. It's more so about what should I expect out of this completely unpredictable creature that maybe used to be human and now has all the trappings of a human being but is obviously controlled by something else and if you can pull them off topic and talk about hbo and game of thrones or perhaps a, a yankee game a mets game or something like that they they will slink back they will many of them will shift right back into much of the person you knew many years ago and then um, and then a switch gets turned off and they are in a trance again. That's the real thing. Because that is the level of, that's the real level of the, the, the frontline level of defense that people have. That these real people, um, these, these puppet masters have in front of them. It's the everyday fight that we have with the, the I don't know, the, the other... The other average men and women who are on the internet, who are not on the internet, they are just trying to figure things out, and they're fighting way, they're fighting their way through it all. That's really what it is, and it's more so when you see how violent people can get, and how out of their minds and irrational and unable to be reached they really can get from time to time, and more and more so these days. That really is what gives a lot of people pause. I think it's less and less the fact that uh, less and less that people are being given pause and they're being gaslit into rethinking their position maybe sometimes somebody uh like for example when the i love when when the media goes and they they go up to a person 
they know how to pick the person that they're going to talk to at like a Trump rally or something like that. And they ask them questions. And there's a person there that you know is there for all the reasons they believe to be right, but can't really articulate it. And when a, a microphone is in front of their faces, they kind of crumble. And then it just becomes more shit slinging. And, uh, you know, th- that's really what it is. Th- there's, it's hard for people to articulate why they are rejecting all the things that the mainstream wants us to believe is good from the medicines they prescribe to the causes they want you to celebrate and all that stuff there it is it goes beyond articulation right now we are talking about an innate gut language that many people i guess have just had dulled or maybe they're just being driven by some sort of i don't know addiction to pleasure here and now to validation here and now future be damned which is exactly what we're talking about with jd unwin and everything else um how we have uh, really been set up to fizzle fizzle i love that idea that we are right here at the at the very moment that we can start really determining whether or not the have your cake and eat it two phase is over and it is definitely over there's no more cake left There's no more cake left, but people are looking for a fix and they want the good times to come back, but they still are grappling with the idea that perhaps the way that we got here is um, there's some really fundamental changes that need to be made. Perhaps that's really bad because we like, uh, we like being crazy. We like living wild. So I don't know. I've I've made some, I've made a, a great amount of changes in my life. But hey, you watch this show. As I said before, am I a saint? Is, is this show? If you were to dissect this show, if you were to take a blood sample from this show, would there not be at least twenty seven percent sexual innuendo and jokes and everything? Uh, have you watched an episode when Matt is here on a, on a Friday night? You have no clue what it's like off air. But at the same time, you know, balance out these, uh, my sick humor that I only give you a smidgen of having that and analyzing life the way it was lived up until even just three, four years ago. I mean, you have no clue what has changed for me since Aurora has been born. That's just I mean, there's all types of, of, of watershed moments in life where you, you things just don't feel right anymore and you, you got to change something up and, and you, God, I mean, you, you start reverting to things that you thought you'd never think of again. You go back to childhood. You go back to your grandparents. What, what, how are they living? Why do they seem so happy and fulfilled? And, and what was in their lives? And, and that's where you start picking it out and you start realizing, oh, it's all the things that... The mainstream tells me is a retrograde and um, and harmful, harmful to personal expression. I start wondering, what am I trying to express? Why is everybody being urged to express things? And why is it that everybody has to express things by having leg-shaking orgasms? Why is that the only, why is that necessary for expressing everything? I don't get it. Ah, oh, they're draining you of your of your focus. I get it. Draining view of your focus. Giving you new gods. 
Ah, it's one hell of a ride, ain't it? But we'll continue poking this bear. I just want to get through some super chats, and then we're doing our badass for the evening. All right, Chai Possum, thank you. Boys Block, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, let's go over to the the Rumble. We have one more from Texas Sioux. Oh, no, no, that's before that. That's all done. There's one other one. Oh, here you go. Citizen Lens. What's going on, Lens? Says, Unwin touched on it. It's a weapon. Infiltration at the highest level. Fill the strongest of competitors with our guys and use honeypots and bribery to blackmail and compromise the rest. Spot on. And that's the other thing, Lens, that has changed. That's the other thing that has changed. Was you, as you can see, um, as we go forward from this, from that, that launch pad over there in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, why do you think blackmailing politicians with extramarital affairs or being gay isn't enough anymore. You know, doesn't I mean, probably 60% of the FBI is probably gay, openly gay. I mean, that doesn't matter anymore. Why do you think that the people who hold the world together, the real, the, the, the real, um, you know, the real construct of power, why do you think that's all held together with children and murder and snuff instead i mean everything the honey potting had to go to new levels because when you have debased western culture to the to the point where things that used to hold you in orbit as a public figure by a blackmailing agent i mean obviously if you're having an extramarital affair it still you don't want that it would still cause undue undue harm uh and and upset to to whoever you're um, involved with, but is it a career ender? Is it really a career ender for a, especially a politician? If people found out that they uh, they had a they had a few nights of indiscretion with a DC madam or something like that, that it, that really doesn't do anything. It really doesn't do anything. Um, that's why I had to go up. Let's see here. Miss Day Dawn says your show is profound. I'm happy that you. You enjoy it. And I hope that you're here again tomorrow night. Jason Burmis will be on the show with us tomorrow night. Then the day after that, Thursday, we have a first-time first experience with Mr. George Norrie. So I can't wait for the rest of this week, but I'm just going to take it day by day. Um, thank you so much for everything else. Let's get into our, our badass from the evening. We only got a couple more nights of badasses. My gosh. Who can it be? That's some badass shit. It's pretty badass. Yes, it is. And now listen. This guy's name. Tonight's badass is Peter Freuken. He's a six foot seven Danish Arctic explorer, anthropologist, actor, and an author. Now we're gonna have a little bit of an issue here. You know why? Because we have some names that are absolutely ridiculous. But Peter Freuken is a badass. After studying to be a doctor at university, Freuken participated in several Arctic explorations, the first being in 1906 when he was only 20, in which after sailing as far north as possible, a further 7,000 miles were traveled via dog sled. It was here that Freuken discovered Inuit culture, and for over two generations, he lived, hunted, and traveled with the Inuit. In two generations... In 1911, Freuken married his first wife, an Inuit woman called 
Navarana Mekupaluk. Nav, uh, Navarana bore him two children, a boy named, I swear to you, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Mekusak Avatak Igimakusuk Usuk Torenguapaluk. No, no, I've, I missed a couple of, of syllables. It is so long. He had two children. That's all I'm going to say. And a girl called Pipaluk Jete Tukum Ingwak Kasaluk Palika Hager. I'm so sorry. My apologies to all the Inuit who watch. When she died in the Spanish flu epidemic in 1921, the local Christian church refused to allow her burial, and so Freuken buried her herself, himself. Freuken wrote over 30 books, most famously the Book of the Eskimos, published posthumously in 1961. An autobiographical work, it, de- it described the Inuit culture Freuken had lived within and detailed how, in 1926, he lost a leg to frostbite, amputating several gangrenous toes himself, and then got stuck under a blizzard on another occasion. Stuck under a blizzard. He used his own feces to fashion a dagger with which he freed himself. Off the back of his literary success, Freuken became the head of a film company specializing in Arctic-related scripts. In 1933, he starred as the villainous character in the film Eskimo, which went on to win an Oscar. In 1920s, Freuken returned to Denmark and was joined and joined the Social Democrats. During World War II, he was involved in the Danish resistance against Germany, aiding refugees from the Nazis. Himself a Jew, he was imprisoned and sentenced to death by the Nazis, but escaped to Sweden. In 1924, Freuken married Magdalene Vang Lodersen, a Margarine Harris. Okay, a Margarine Harris. Uh, but their 20-year-old marriage, or 20-year marriage, collapsed in 1944. N- not enough margarine to keep that marriage going. A year later, he met Dagmar Kohn. Kohn was a fashion illustrator whose work made it onto the ni- April 1947 cover of Vogue, introducing Christian Duarte. As, a, uh, as if his life couldn't be more surprising, in 1956, Freuken answered the $64,000 question of the American TV show, The $64,000 Question. The next year, he was awarded the gold medal of the International Benjamin Franklin Society for his, quote, service to mankind in opening new frontiers. He lived with Cohn until he died of a heart attack in 1957. His ashes were scattered over Thule, Greenland, where his life as an adventurer began. So there you, there you have him. There's Peter Freuken. I don't know how I got through that one. You have, listen, this, is a, this name of his son is not to be believed. I just can't believe all of the consonants in the name. I mean, the, the U's help break it up. Uh, the, the orang it, it's just incredible one there's like there's like 30 30 word, 30 letters in that one all right well thank you everybody it's tuesday night tuesday night is over i'll see you on wednesday don't go anywhere until then stay exactly where you are don't go to work and that's it that's all for you bye-bye i'll catch you on the flip side
quite frankly, is film for our live studio audience. And now our super chatter, starting with Raymond Rosenberry, Stostube, Shotzi, Herman, and Katie Sky. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, all across the wonderful platforms that have been watching, including our great Rumble Ranters and all of our gold pillars. I'm releasing the scratching as we speak right now. And until tomorrow, you can reach me at quite frankly podcast at gmail.com and please become a sponsor. I would love to include you in on the August book club, which is going to be fantastic. Go to the sponsor us section on quite frankly.tv and I can't wait to welcome you aboard. Good night. You're a kitty cat? You're Tom. Hello. I'm a kitty cat as well. <laughs>